Spring, in Chester Springs and Art School Road, I had a container outside over by my grill. It was um, a container designed to hold charcoal so that I could have it dry close to the grill outside. And it worked great for a while. But then when we moved to our new house, um, I went to get some things out of it. I had wood in there as well for smoking. And um, I noticed that it looked really good on three sides, but on one side it had broken out. Some big chunks were missing. And pieces of wood and charcoal were falling out of the container. And I thought to myself, well, that's kind of useless. I can't do anything with that. I can't use it for another purpose. It's useless. And uh, so it ended up being thrown out. Why do I share that with you? Because the passage this morning is talking about containers. And it's an interesting study in containers. There's a number of interesting things that the text this morning says about containers. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verse 20 through the end of the chapter through 26. It says a number of interesting things about containers. Several are kind of striking and some are not surprising at all. But um, it begs the question to the reader. It first of all begs the question to Timothy. What kind of container are you? They use the word vessel. But it's container. What kind of container are you? And outside of Timothy, then it goes on because we know that Timothy, it says in 2 Timothy that Timothy is to teach faithful people who will teach others also. So, Timothy, what kind of container are you? And then Timothy then is to teach others by asking the question, what kind of container are they? Which should cause them to ask others also, what kind of container are they? And to talk about what Paul says, in fact, God says, about containers. Now, obviously, Timothy's not talking about my charcoal container or vessel, but you get the point. But before we get into the text itself, we need to pray and ask God to open our eyes to see it. Let's pray, Lord. Thank you again for the opportunity that we can spend some time in your word. I pray that you'll help us, that we will be able to consider what you say and consider ourselves in light of what you say. Open our eyes and help us to see things that we cannot see left to our own selves. Help us to see ourselves truthfully, clearly, accurately. And then, Lord, help us to pursue you by the power of your spirit and be changed. So glorify yourself in our study and in what results from our study this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 20, Paul writes to the young pastor Timothy in his struggling church. In effect, he says, so Timothy, flee, I'm sorry, starting in verse 20. So Timothy, now in a great house, there are not only vessels or containers, not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 
have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil. Correcting his opponent with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, my, my illustration that I gave this morning is not an accurate illustration, but it's the one I had. He doesn't say useless as in no use versus useful. He has a different contrast. See, the, the container I have is useless. It can be used for nothing. But what he does here, he does something a little bit different. He establishes two different categories, not useless and useful. Both are useful for two different purposes. One container is useful for honorable things. The other one is useful for dishonorable things. Now, just so you're aware, he establishes two different categories of usefulness, and he describes them as two different ways, useful for honorable, useful for dishonorable. He also describes them as one gold and silver, and the other one is wood and clay. You see that? The honorable one is gold and silver. The dishonorable one is wood and clay. Now, what he's really talking about is one is used for a bathroom and one isn't. That's what he's really talking about. One's useful just for holding on to what comes out of a human body and to be dumped out, to be thrown away. It's the toilet of the day. The other one's useful for honorable things. It is important to notice he doesn't draw distinction as in, as in there's a third category, a fourth category, a fifth category. Now, we do know archaeologically that he is referen- that, that he's he's not he's just ignoring a whole different category of things. For his statement, he's he's ignoring that there was clay and wood pots used for normal everyday stuff. But the normal everyday stuff is not dishonorable things. He's establishing two categories. There's dishonorable and honorable. Honorable, you would decorate them. In other words, he's saying there's these beautiful things that you hold beautiful things in and you decorate them really nicely. And then you have these dishonorable things that you don't care about. They're just so you can get it out of the house. So he says there's honorable and dishonorable, and it begs the question to Paul. What Paul's trying to get to Timothy is he's trying to ask him a question, which type are you, and this is what it looks like to be one, not the other. And so the reader of this text needs to be reading this text and asking themselves, what am I? Am I honorable? Or dishonorable, because we're all vessels. Paul uses this term, this idea of vessels, repeatedly throughout the scriptures. One of the ways he does is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, an honorable vessel, vessel is one who holds the, the gospel. 2, Timothy, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. An honorable, honorable vessel holds the gospel of Jesus Christ, for example. So he says in verse 20, Now there, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but of wood and clay, some of honorable use and some of dishonorable use. And that's the metaphor. What he says in verse 21, he goes on and says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master, ready for every good work. This is a radical statement. 
what he says here is radical because if we process through the theological teaching throughout the scriptures, our natural condition is to be honorable use or dishonorable use. Dishonorable use. It's the use of the evil one, right? Dishonorable use. In effect, it's like a toilet. That's the dishonorable use. Our natural condition is to be of dishonorable use, dishonorable function, for the glory of the evil one, for the glory of the evil one's kingdom, for the glory of the evil, evil one's plan. That's the purpose. Everyone who's unsaved would fall into the category of dishonorable use. What's radical in this statement, as Paul writes to Timothy, he says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. I won't get into the rest of the passage at this point. Which should take the reader's breath away. It should take Paul or Timothy's breath away. Wait a second, stop. I thought that, that salvation is from God, right? And if you thought that, you're right. You're absolutely right. Paul's writing to Timothy, a pastor. And what he's saying to Timothy is this. In effect, he's saying, Timothy, you know, if you're really truly saved, you are saved by God. It's God that makes you alive, Ephesians chapter 2. He's the one who rescues you from the evil one. He's the one who, by his grace, gives you faith to believe. It's in its entirety. But if you are saved, here's what's going to happen. You will work. What does verse 10 say of Ephesians chapter 2? For it is, I'm sorry, it's not, that's not Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10 says, what does it say? We, we are workmanship, thank you, my mind pulled a blank. We are, we are his workmanship created for good works which he ordained beforehand that we should walk in them, right? So as saved people, he creates us for good works. He creates us to be Active in the kingdom, active for the kingdom of God, active for the glory of God. That's what he created us for. That's what he saved us for. So when he moves in our lives and we are justified and we become his, we become alive, we now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are able to do what? Work. We are able to function in a totally different way. And yet, the command is throughout the scripture, isn't it? It's everywhere, isn't it? As believers, we are to work. In other words, another way to put it is, as believers, we are to look like something. We are to function like something. We are to be after something. We are to be pursuing something. And so what does he say here? Verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. If God began the good work in you, he will continue to perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. But in that same book, it says what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both are willing to work for his good pleasure. So the command is there, driven by the Spirit's work, that it is promised to accomplish. And so what Paul, in effect, is saying is that Miracle of miracles for a believer, he can change. 
He can become different. He can move from dishonorable use to honorable use. In other words, he can look and function in alignment with who he truly is in Christ. He can. We are involved in the process as believers of moving from dishonorable use to honorable use. We are we, we can move from clay and wood that served only one purpose, refuse as it were, to honorable use, gold and silver lined vessels that are honorable for the Lord, the one who saved us. It begs the question, and we'll find out a little bit what, what each one looks like, well, what the honorable one looks like primarily, it begs the question that we all need to ask ourselves, and that is, what type of vessel am I? What type of container am I? What does it look like to be a container of honorable use? What does it look like? You see, Christianity is not a passive thing because the Holy Spirit isn't passive. Faith is not a passive thing. Faith in Christ is not a passive thing an active thing. Faith in Jesus Christ is transformative. Faith in Jesus Christ takes us from who we were to who we are. Faith in Christ changes someone from desiring the riches of Egypt to considering the riches of Christ far greater. That's what God's grace does. Grace takes someone who is persecuting Christians and brings them to preaching Christ to him crucified. That's what God's grace does, and that's what faith that God gives us does in our lives. It's not passive at all. It's absolutely transformative in every way. Notice what he says again in verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of honorable use. It begs the question, how do you cleanse yourself from dishonorable use? Now, how do you cleanse, how, I mean, if, if you think about it, how would you cleanse a vessel from dishonorable use? Today we get toilet bowl cleaner, right? We squirt it in the toilet and we get a brush and we scrub and scrub and scrub and scrub and scrub. Make sense? You know what most of Christianity thinks? Most of Christianity thinks, yeah, it, just take a paper towel and wipe and life's fine. That's what most are spray Febreze on it. Most Christians today think it just happens. And we just remain passive. And somehow, we just change. And then we wonder, why aren't we changing? And I find most Christians just think, well, I guess this is what change looks like. That's not at all what he says here. In this passage, Paul writes Timothy, the pastor, and he says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, so there's an activity going on, from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. And before we get into what it means specifically to cleanse himself from what is dishonorable, notice what he says the end result is. 
The end result is discovered at the end of verse 21. And it's these four quick statements. Set apart as holy, useful, I'm sorry, three statements. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Three statements. This is what it looks like. The first statements there. This is what it looks like to be cleansed, purified, honorable vessel. Notice, and I just unpack them real quickly. Set apart as holy. Holy means set apart. So it's set apart as set apart. Like radically different. Radically set apart, looking differently from what? In the context? The other vessels. Looking radically different from which type of vessel? The wooden clay ones. The dishonorable ones. There's something radically different. Can I ask you a question? At home. You're at your house. How many of you would think about going to the cabinet, pulling out a a coffee cup, and filling it with coffee and drinking it, if you like coffee? And if you don't like coffee, whatever you want. Grab a cup, fill it with whatever you like. How many of you would not even think twice about that? You're thirsty, you would go to the cabinet and get a cup. How many of you? Anybody not do that? Okay, how many of you, if you're thirsty, your first thought is, I'm going into the bathroom, I'm going to stick my head in the toilet and drink it? Anybody? Dogs will. There's no humans that will. Why? You know why? Because your cup on the shelf looks radically different from your toilet. In every way. You're not going to stick your head in your toilet and drink. But you will use a cup. For you, the cup is honorable use. It's to refresh your body, to, to hydrate yourself, to give you, if it's not water, if it's some sort of drink, to give you pleasure at the same time as you drink it. There's no confusing the two, is there? There's something really wrong There's something horribly wrong with Jim if Lois walks into her house and she sees Jim on all fours with his head in the toilet drinking water. Would you agree with that, Lois? There's something horribly wrong with that. And I suspect Lois, being a loving wife, would say, Jim, what are you doing? (laughs) She's going to do something. She's going to stop it. Because it doesn't make any sense. There's no confusing the issue, is there? There's no confusing the issue. But in Christianity today, too often, we think that we can look nothing at all different from the vessels of dishonorable use. And we're not talking about the clothing style. We're talking about a lifestyle. We're talking about what drives us. What fuels us? What's our reason for getting up in the morning? What's our reason for existing? What's our reason for going to work? What's our reason for eating? What's our reason for recreating? What's our reason for relaxing? What's our reason for talking? What's our reason for listening? What's our reason for anything? It should be different. 
to be different. It's set apart. Not the same. The purposes are different. The goals are different. The objectives are different. The reasons are different. To its very core, to its very foundational principles, the reason for it all and what drives it and fuels every aspect of it must be different. Set apart. That's what it means. Set apart. Different. Set apart is holy. He goes on. And he says, not only set apart as holy, but interesting, he says next, useful for the master's use, which is a very interesting thought. He says, he will be a vessel for honorable use, useful to the master of the house. Of course, the master of the house is Jesus. The contrast is useless, non-accomplishing, non-functioning of honorable things. It's useful, right? It's not broken. It's not like that container I have in the backyard, I had in the backyard. It's useful, but only for dishonorable things. The master of the house finds the one grouping of vessels useful, the other ones, by very nature, as a result, useless. So it begs the question, useful for what? The master finds these honorable vessels, and this helps us to examine ourselves to see, first of all, am I set apart? Is my reason for being for God's glory? For his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is my reason for going to work, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My reason for recreating, for his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My reason for hanging out with my family, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And on and on and on. Useful for the master's use means that it actually is being used by the master for that purpose. The, the, the honorable vessel is actually being used. It's not just, it doesn't just have usefulness latent in it and it's on the shelf that maybe someday someone will take it off the shelf. Most of us have in our cabinets cups or glasses that are inherently useful, but they never get used, don't we? I do. I bet most of us do. That's not honorable use. It's not latent usefulness versus latent or potential uselessness. It says he finds it useful, which means what? He uses it. It's being used. This vessel that is for honorable use is actually being used. what? Well, we were created for his glory. We were saved for his glory. We were saved to advance his kingdom, to glorify him where we are. We are saved to be lights in the midst of darkness. 
we are saved for glorifying Christ and enjoying Him forever. That's why we're saved. Usefulness means that that's actually happening. It's actually there. It's actually being demonstrated by this set-apart vessel. It's showing itself regularly and more regularly all the time. The evidence is popping. No one's mistaking it. No one's putting their head in the toilet. It's evident. It's clearly evident. The master is actually using the vessel for its honorable function. So in, in light of this discussion that Paul is having with Timothy, it's really important that we ask the question up to this point. Are we set apart as holy? Are you, am I, set apart as holy? And the implication in that statement is not just God doing that, but I'm doing that. Because he said previously, what? If anyone cleanses himself. Are you being used by the master? This is not a condemning question. It's just a question. Are you being used by the master? Does the master find you useful? Useful. The last phrase that he gives in verse 21, ready for every good work, is an interesting conclusion of that sentence. As he describes the, the honorable vessel. The honorable vessel he describes here as ready for every good work. What does it mean to be ready for every good work? Ready means prepared. Prepared for every good work. But it doesn't just mean generically prepared. It means being ready for every good work means that you're looking for it. You're looking for the opportunity. You're looking for the privilege of actually functioning in the good work. It means that you are on a hunt for these things. Because you love being an honorable vessel. Because if you're set apart, there's something really gross about being set apart and not doing anything. There's something really strange about being set apart as holy and not doing anything holy. Not functioning in a holy way. There's something really weird about being set apart, but the master's not using you. So the question, lastly, is are you ready for every good work? Like, as in, are you prepared for every good work? And are you, as in, are you, are you looking for good works to fulfill? Are you looking for ways to serve? Are you looking for ways to glorify God? Are you on the hunt, ready, prepared, tuned in, well thought through, well studied, well trained, well practiced, ready for every good work? That's the picture for ready for good work. You know, something really, since I was up at Boston a couple weeks ago for the marathon, 
and my had, had my little fiasco, it's, it's relatively easy to line up at a marathon at the start line. All you got to do is pay 100 bucks or whatever it is and, and drive there. No, not Boston, but most marathons. It's rel relatively easy to get to the front, to, to, the fin to the start line. It really is. Being at the start line does not mean you're ready to run the race. Does that make sense? Almost every marathon I've run, except for Boston, I've met people who, at the start line, who say, yeah, I'm just doing this to, to, for a bucket, you know, fill my bucket list or do something that's in my bucket list. I know it's going to happen. Almost inevitably, they're going to not make it or it's going to turn into a death march. That's what's going to happen. They're not ready. Being ready is what? It's well-trained. It's well-prepared. It's mentally focused, physically focused, and on and on and on. In this case, it's spiritually focused and trained. Spiritually tuned in. How can you be ready for, for every good work when you're not looking for spiritual opportunities? Is it possible that we can be ready for every good work and not thinking about spiritual things on a regular basis, on an ongoing basis? Is that possible? No, it's not possible at all. Just by way of example, 2 Timothy 3, the next chapter, at the end of the chapter it says what? Listen. Starting in verse 10, writing to Timothy, he says, You, however, have followed my teaching. You hear that? Followed my teaching. Followed my conduct. Followed my aim in life. Followed my faith. Followed my patience. Followed my love. Followed my steadfastness. Followed my persecution. Followed my sufferings that happened at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. Do you hear all that? That's all preparatory. That's preparing. Training, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But, verse 14, as for you, what does he say next? What's the next word? Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. You hear? Continue to practice, Timothy. You hear that? Continue to remind yourself, Timothy. Continue to dwell in truth, Timothy. Continue to focus on Christ, Timothy. Continue to meditate on Jesus, Timothy. Continue to, to remember how great your salvation is, Timothy. Remember what Christ has done. Continue on that. But as for you, continue what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And what does he say next? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And notice verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What did the verse we were looking at say? Ready for every good work. Chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, informs us a little bit about chapter 2, verse 21. What does it mean to be ready for every good work? 
Is it possible that you can remember, that you can be ready for every good work if you don't know the scriptures? Is it possible? Is it possible that you can be ready for every good work if you know the scriptures but you're not remaining in them on an ongoing basis? No. Is it possible you can be ready for every good work if you are not finding yourself on an ongoing basis being taught by the scriptures, being reproved by the scriptures, being corrected by, corrected by the scriptures, receiving training and righteousness by the scriptures. If that's not in your life on an ongoing, characteristic way, is it possible you can be ready for every good work? The answer is no. No. It's not possible. And so what Paul does is he narrows it down a little bit more in verse 22. He says, so, Timothy, flee youthful passions. By the way, let me just pause on that for a second. Youthful passions is not just referring about sexual things. Some of your translations, they say youthful lusts. It includes sexual things. But youthful passions is more reflective on a much larger scale. What does Proverbs say? How shall a young man keep his way pure? How shall a young man keep his way pure? What does it say next? By keeping it according to the word of God. That's what he says. When he says, flee youthful temptations, he's not talking about sex only. He's talking about things that are contrary to Christ. Youthful passions. Passions that are not Christward. Passions that are, see, there's, there's youthful passions, which are sinful passions. Kind of like Ephesians chapter um, chapter 4, is it? Yeah, Ephesians chapter 4, about being driven and tossed by every wind of doctrine, by deceitful scheming. You know, hey, that looks good. Hey, that looks good. Hey, that's great. That'd be good. That'll be good. Oh, yeah. Woo. But not being controlled by the truth. Because God declares what is good. God declares what is right. Youthful passions are passions that people who aren't self-controlled pursue. Does that make sense? And some people can be very old still pursuing youthful passions. People can be ancient and pursue youthful passions. He doesn't say the passions of the youth. It's youthful, youth-like passions. You wonder what, what that looks like. Go back to when you were a kid and how stupid we were with our money, for example. When I was growing up, one of the greatest things I could do is spend my allowance on buying 
baseball cards to run through my spokes and make a motorcycle noise, I thought. Youthful passions. I remember my mom saying, if you want to do that, it's fine, Scooby, you should set aside some for the Lord. Now grudgingly throwing a nickel at church in the offering plate. I don't want to give up that nickel. I could buy another pack of baseball cards. Youthful passions. Y we do the same thing today. We're just not buying baseball cards. You do realize that, right? Same thing. Youthful passions. What are we after? Flee youthful passions, Timothy. And it's interesting he's telling Timothy, the elder, that. Why? Because the elder's not immune. Right? The elder's not immune. Flee youthful passions. Be critical of what you're after and why you're after it. What are you doing and why are you doing it? What are you thinking and why are you thinking it? What are you pursuing and why are you pursuing it? What are you after? What does your life count for? I'm horrified at the amount of funerals I go to. And hear people give testimony of the people's, the deceased's, youthful passions. We've all been there. We've all been there. And one day they'll be speaking that way about us. Unless we're pursuing being a good vessel, an honorable vessel that Christ is working. Paul said, I mentioned it this last week, I believe. Paul said, I only purpose that you would know, I would know Christ and him crucified among you. That's all that matters. That's it. In every aspect of what Paul did, Christ and him crucified. Every aspect. Flee. You hear the activity there? You hear the passion activity? Flee youthful passions. Joseph, sexually. But do you hear the, the aggression, the aggressive fleeing? This is like, flee it as if your life depended on it. And guess what? It does. You know what Paul's saying? It's okay to take vacation from work. It's not okay to take vacation from Jesus. It's not okay. It's okay to take a little time away from your family. It's not okay to take a little time away from Jesus. It's okay to take away a little time to recreate. It's not okay to take away some time from Jesus. Flee anything that takes you from Jesus. Those are youthful passions, and that's the point of youthful passions. If it's taking you from Jesus, it's youthful passions. If you don't find Christ in it, flee it or find Christ in it and find it for the kingdom of God. If you can't find Christ in it, flee it. Get out. Flee. Run. As fast as you can. 
flee youthful passions. But not just flee youthful passions. You know what you'll do if you just flee youthful passions? You'll go from one youthful passion to the next. That's all you'll do. You know why? There's nothing, you have no knowledge. If you're, if you're just fleeing youthful passions, but you're not fleeing to something, you have nothing to, you have nothing to go to. You're just going to go to another of the same type. What does he say? Flee youthful passions and what? Pursue righteousness. So you hear the aggressiveness on both sides. Flee, pursue. If I could just present this picture. <clears throat> if you're walking in a mall at night in a parking lot and somebody comes out to mug you, out of between cars to mug you, the natural thing is to walk away, right? Right? Just casually walk away. Is that the natural way? No, what do you do? You run away from them, but you don't run into further darkness, do you? The, the, the normal thing to do is to run to the light. That, isn't it? It's the normal thing. Run to the light. Flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness. You know what the problem is? You and I don't know what righteousness is. Do we? The only way we know what righteousness is is what? Knowing the truth, and that starts with knowing Jesus. Pursue righteousness. Chase it. Fight for it. Run for it with everything that's in you. It's not a casual thing. Pursue it. He doesn't just say pursue righteousness, pursue faith, pursue love, pursue peace. All summed up in pursue Christ. Pursue knowing Christ, pursue fellowshipping with Christ, pursue knowing Jesus and walking intimately with Jesus Chapter 1, verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, because then you're, an, you're a, a dishonorable use vessel. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words you have heard from me in the faith and love there in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Don't be like those in Asia. Pursue. Pursue love, peace, righteousness. 
faith. And notice what he says, along with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. You know what that means? You can't do it alone. You realize that? You can't do it alone. Pursue it along with. Flee along with. Flee along with those who are fleeing. Pursue along with those who are pursuing. That's what he says. What kind of vessel are you? What kind of vessel am I? If you find yourself, yeah, I, I don't see myself in the description of, a, of an honorable youth. Flee and pursue. Flee and pursue. Flee and pursue. Flee and pursue all the time along with those who are fleeing and pursuing. You know anybody who's fleeing and pursuing? Flee with them. Pursue with them. Flee with them and pursue with them like it, like it's everything counts on it. Everything depends on it because it does. And by the way, the only way you're going to do it is with the spirits at work in you. But you will if the spirits at work in you. Flee and pursue. Why is it so important. Why is it so crucial? So he goes on, he says, verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Before we get to why is it so important, I want you to notice he continues the thought in verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Which begs the question, what is a foolish, intima- uh, ignorant controversy? Well, it leads to quarrels. But wait a second. If Timothy's standing up against false teachers, isn't that going to lead to, fo- to quarrels? Won't it? Of course it will. If Paul's standing up to false teachers, isn't that going to lead to quarrels? Of course it will. You know, Paul's saying there's some things that are worthy of quarreling over. And some things are not. In fact, there's a whole host of things that are not worthy of quarreling over. What are, it begs the question, what are foolish, ignorant controversies? You know what they are? Things that have nothing to do with Jesus. Things that have nothing to do with the faith. I don't know about you, but I kind of get caught up in those sometimes. Do you? I kind of get caught up in politics once in a while. Do you? I, I kind of get caught up in my team versus your team once in a while. Do you? I kind of get caught up in I think this is best and not that. Do you? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that thing have to do with that? That's what Paul's trying to drive towards. The thing that is foolish that he's talking about here, the things that are foolish and ignorant are foolish and ignorant because they're ignorant of Christ. 
They have nothing to do with Christ. They have nothing to do with his glory. They have nothing to do with his kingdom. They have to do with a different kingdom. My kingdom. And we find that we get so jacked up over things that have nothing to do. And then when we feel guilty about it, you know what we do so often? We put Jesus' window dressing on it. As if that somehow gives it a pass. Jesus doesn't aim to be the curtains and the windows. He aims to be the structure. And anything else, by definition, is foolish and ignorant. Why is it foolish and ignorant? Because it excludes Jesus and helps others exclude Jesus. It helps others remain fools. It helps me to remain a fool. It helps others to, be, to remain ignorant of Jesus. It leaves me continuing to be ignorant of Jesus. That's what that's all about. So the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome over these other things. But kind to everyone. Now, kind does not mean what you think it means. We think kind is the way we interpret kind today. Never ruffling any feathers. Being tolerant. That type of thing. Kind means doing what it takes to rescue somebody and bring people to Jesus. That's kind. So we've got to look at kind from God's perspective. Because Paul's, as I just said, he's, he's quarreling with people. Isn't he? He's quarreling with people about Jesus, bring, trying to bring people to Jesus. He's dealing with false teachers, Galatians. These people who say you need in your church that say you need to, to be circumcised. I wish their knife would slip and they'd castrate themselves. That doesn't sound real kind to me. Does that sound kind to you? Not in our definition today. In Paul's definition, that's really kind. Paul says, these people who are leading you astray, they are devoted to destruction. That's kind. By the way, it is quarrelsome. But it's quarrelsome for the kingdom. It's not quarrelsome about ignorant, foolish things. Kind is trying to rescue people from the quagmire. Kind is actually rescuing people because I'm ready and longing to rescue. I'm, I'm prepared to rescue people from the pit, from being dishonorable vessels. Jesus, when he spoke to the, to the Pharisees, he called them hypocrites, whitewashed sepulchers. That doesn't sound very kind. It was really kind to who? The disciples, wasn't it? To show the error? When Paul says what he says to the Galatian church, he's not necessarily being kind to those people that are false teachers, is he? He's being kind to the rest of the church, rescuing the rest of the church. He's being kind. 
And, he, by the way, he's being kind even to the false teachers, potentially, isn't he? Because it says kind to everyone, doesn't it? So secondarily, he's being kind to the false teachers, isn't he? You'll see why in just a second. <coughs> able to teach patiently, or able to teach, which is apt to teach, but it, what it really means is ready to teach. See, if you're a vessel for honorable use, you're ready, apt to teach. And patiently enduring evil. Because evil is going to come. Because the false teachers hate you. Don't they? If, you're, if you are honorable and they're dishonorable, won't they by nature hate you? Absolutely they will. Verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And gentleness goes along with that kindness. But notice what he says next. God may perhaps give them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's the goal. The goal is to see these people come to repentance. The goal is to see these people turn back to God. Not that I can cause anybody to repent, but that the Holy Spirit will work in their life. How does he work in their life? What does the Holy Spirit use to bring someone to repentance? What does he use? He uses the truth of the scriptures, doesn't he? Which means the vessel of honorable use are doing what? Teaching, presenting the word of God to those around them to help them flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, and then dealing with the false teachers, dealing with those in error, so that perhaps the Spirit will use that truth to do what? Cause them to come to repentance. Can I just ask you a quick question? Real quick question. When was the last time you ministered to anybody in this church? I, you don't need to answer out loud. I'm asking a question. When was the last time? But more important question, how characteristic do you minister to people in our church? That's what Paul's telling Timothy. That's what's supposed to be happening. And we think, well, it's the elder, right? No, teach faithful men who teach others also. So I need to ask you a question. Firstly, because Paul, Tim, Paul's primary focus to Timothy is in the church. It has application outside the church, but implication primarily into the church. Are you ministering to people in our church? Are you exhorting people in our church, encouraging, ministering to people in our church to flee youthful passions? Are you ministering to people in our church to pursue aggressively righteousness and all the rest that he says? Are you? Because what Paul's really saying to Timothy, if you're not, you're a vessel of dishonorable use. You're not a vessel of honorable use. You're a vessel of dishonorable use. And so that's why he's warning Timothy so strongly, be after this. Be after it. Then secondarily, if I may just throw it in here, although Paul's focus on Timothy is in the church, are you fleeing, uh, uh, fleeing the youthful passions and pursuing righteousness and ministering to others outside the church for that reason? Those that are outside the church. For the kingdom. Perhaps, perhaps, through your ministry, 
God will grant some repentance. God will bring some to repentance. Are you involved in that? Are you involved because Christ is worthy, because your focus is on Christ, because you're pursuing? See, I'm convinced you cannot be pursuing or fleeing youthful passions and pursuing righteousness, and it won't evidence itself. Remember what we said? It's clearly evident. You can't be fleeing youthful passions, pursuing righteousness, and it isn't evident within the church and outside the church. It's impossible. If I'm fleeing youthful passions and pursuing righteousness, and I'm in the church, and I'm talking to people and interacting with people, I'm going to discover real quickly some people are pursuing righteousness, right? And I'm going to discover pretty quickly some people are fleeing youthful passions, right? I'm also going to discover there's some people who are not fleeing youthful passions, and they're pursuing, they're not pursuing righteousness, right? I'm going to discover that. If I'm pursuing or fleeing, uh, fleeing youthful passions and pursuing uh, righteousness, do you think there's going to be a, a, a discomfort between those two? What do you think? Think there's going to be a clash there? Think there's going to be a, a non-fit there? Round peg in a square hole, so to speak? Of course there will be. And if I'm pursuing righteousness and fleeing youthful passions, I'm seeing someone who isn't, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find myself trying to get them to do what? Flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, and I'm going to be speaking the truth into their life. That's the evidence that I'm actually fleeing youthful passions and pursuing righteousness, is I'm actually speaking truth into people's lives in the church. And maybe God will bring them to repentance. And then outside the world, of course, there's nobody out there that's fleeing youthful passions and pursuing righteousness, right? Because they're lost. And so, once again, round peg, square hole. And so I'll find myself speaking into that, won't I? If I'm filled with Christ and filled with his righteousness, won't what is in come out? Won't it? It has to. So if I find myself never speaking truth into the world, never speaking truth into the church, and I hate the word never because all of us can find one space where we did. Well, there was this one time 18 years ago I did. If you and I are characteristically not speaking truth into a lost and dying world, and if we're characteristically not speaking truth and speaking Christ into a church, you know what we are? We're vessels of dishonorable use. That's what we are. What do you find yourself, if I may ask you this question, when you're out in the world, do you find yourself in foolish, ignorant conversation? Or do you find yourself in Christ-saturated conversation with the lost? Do you find, because we do find what's in us comes out. So do you find yourself with Christ pouring out or not? In Timothy's church, there's almost none of this. Almost none. 
That's why Paul tells Timothy, but you in chapter 3, stay firm in it. Do you find yourself out and about that you're in Christ-saturated conversations? Really? All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Next chapter. Do you find yourself in that position? When you're in the church, do you find yourself in Christ-saturated conversations? Gospel-saturated conversations? Grace-saturated conversations? Kingdom-saturated conversations? Or not? Notice what he says, verse 26. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You know what he's saying there? We were all naturally captured, right? Aren't we? By nature, we are captured people. And you know what he's saying here? Vessels that are of common, er, I'm sorry, vessels that are of dishonorable use are vessels that are captured by him to do his will. Can I ask you a quick question as we wrap up this passage? Is it possible? Is it possible for dishonorable use vessels to be saved people? To change the verbiage. Is it possible for believers to be captured to do the will of the evil one? The answer is no. So if you're hearing this passage, and I, what I'm saying is very painful perhaps, but if what you're hearing this passage is that you, when you think about the passage, you're saying, you know, I find myself to be a, not an honorable usage vessel. I'm not ready. I'm not ready for every good work. I'm not being used by the Lord. I'm not being found useful for the master of the house. I'm not set apart as holy. I don't find myself fleeing youthful passions. I don't find myself pursuing holiness or pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace. (coughs) Certainly not along with those who call the Lord from a pure heart, who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I find myself, the character of my life is being caught up in foolish, ignorant controversies. I get quarrelsome over stupid things. I don't get quarrelsome for Christ. I certainly don't demonstrate in my life kindness of rescue. The idea of seeing them repent not high on my scale. In fact, most times it's not even on my radar screen. You know what Paul says to Timothy? Those type of people are captured by the devil spiritually. That's who they are. They're captured by the devil to do his will. Paul's saying they're not saved. That's what he's saying. You know what my hope is for today in this message? My hope is that 
this passage and my s- relatively lack